Really eager to gather around the Lord's table with you. I've been eager all week long to, to do this. It's been a while since we really celebrated together like this. And we are going to do it together in groups, and I'll administrate that shortly. I want to exhort a little bit first, maybe do a little teaching. I'd like to, uh, in the next season of our time together, um, lay some foundational truths so that, for one thing, so we're always sure in our foundation. How many of you know we can never be too strong in our foundation in Christ, building on a rock, which is Jesus Christ. We want the living word, but we want revelation living word, not dead old word. We want the word always to be alive. There's never, although there are images of buildings and foundations in the scriptures, they're always alive. They're never just a, a dead thing that we move on from. They're things that constantly feed life into us. Amen? All the truths, all the basics of scripture that Jesus taught, they're always alive to us. But the second part of it is that our, our vision here at Hillside is that every single one among us will be making disciples. That there's never gonna, thank you, that the goal of life, the goal of ministry, the goal of being connected to this body, really I think it's a church-wide vision, but I know not all churches do it this way, is that everybody would come to a mature place where you can go take somebody who's new in Christ and help them grow to maturity in Christ without saying, well, just come to church on Sunday and hopefully the preacher will say something that'll bless you or come to this Bible study on Wednesday night. Somebody else will tell you. We want every one of us, all of us who are fathers and mothers, to grow to a place where you could take somebody and you can explain it to them. And, and I always ask the question, thank you. I always ask the question of saints who have been in Christ for a long time, could you explain to somebody, for example, why they should be water baptized after they come to Christ? Or is the answer, well, that, that's just kind of what we do. You know, we got a baptism next month and you sign up and, and we do it because there's a sign-up sheet. <laughs> there should be, in other words, there ought to be such a rich understanding. And I'm not saying that you have to be able to quote scriptures, you have to be able to launch into a teaching classroom style. But I mean, sitting one-on-one -on -one across the coffee cup or sitting there with that guy who's crying his eyes out. Um, can you explain how to give your heart to the Lord? Can you, can you explain, you know, what it is that's the basics of of our belief because uh, there, it's not to be taken for granted. I'm, I've been amazed what we did um, a few months ago. It was really fun. We had a Bible study going on and we had a few guests, like a few people I'd never seen before. They just came out to hear the word and learn. And one of them was asking questions like, who's Moses? And I don't know about you, but I, I love that. I love that now that you don't have to undo a religious foundation, but you get to teach right from scratch and, and open up the word. And here's who Moses is, and this is what the old covenant's about. So we want to do some foundation things, and today I want to lay some foundation for why it is that we gather around what really should properly just be called the Lord's table. Communion is just, a, it's a Greek word that means fellowship. It means the same thing. If you read the word fellowship and you read the word communion, it's the exact same word. It just means common union. We're all gathering around together in Christ. And now is a great time to be gathered around the Lord's table if there ever was one. With what's happening in our nation, which what's happening in our neighborhoods. There's the new daddy. God bless you, Paul. Welcome. It's good to see you, man. You haven't aged a bit. <laughs> he looks a little on the tired side, but I can't wait. I can't wait to see that baby. Anyway, sorry, that was a distraction. With what happened just up the road from us the other day when our president gave a speech, I, I thought actually when I first saw the pictures of it with that red background, I thought it was somebody spoofing on it and you know making, making a, a thing. And then I realized, oh my goodness, he actually had that for a background. That it was almost made to look demonic. And the things that spilled out of his mouth, the accusations and the anger that poured out really disturbed me. And I, I hope it did you too. There is a time that it's okay to be disturbed. 
Disturbed not to remain in that place and not to stay disturbed to the point of anger, but disturbed enough to go to the place of prayer until you feel the peace of God. You all understand that's the purpose and the goal of intercession, right? How do you know you've prayed long enough? You finish praying when you come to a place of peace. You're finished praying when you come to a place of joy. You're finished praying when you've come to a place where anger, anxiety, whatever it is that you had in your heart is no longer there and there's a heavenly atmosphere inside. That's when you're done praying. So thankfully, I came to that place pretty quickly this time and just really, here's more Psalm, Psalm 2 again. Nations are raging, people plotting against the Lord, but what a great time to be centered around the presence of the Lord and to make that our focus. So what the enemy would love is for the people of God to be distracted with all of these things that the enemy's trying to do, all the things the world's trying to do. And what the Lord wants is let's stay focused around Christ and just continue to simply minister. Wherever there's an open door, wherever there's a place to pour out what we may take for granted because we've had it, some of us for a long time. What we're tempted to take for granted, many are dying to have and many are longing for, even if they can't put a name to it yet, they're longing to have what we have. And it reminded me as we were praying before service today, it reminded me of this moment in Acts 27 when Paul was on the boat and they were in the middle of a storm and it had been 14 days and it says, and all hope of being saved had been lost. And there's Paul on the 14th day, he gets up in front of the whole crew, all 200, what, 278 or something like that, 272, all the souls on the boat that God had promised him were gonna be okay and he said, men, Take heart. It's been 14 days since, you've, since we've seen sun or in 14 days since you've eaten. And now take some food and receive some strength because not a hair on any of your heads is going to be lost. And then it says that he broke bread and he gave it to them. And they were all encouraged. He broke bread. The breaking of bread in the scriptures was not just for the Last Supper. When Jesus said, do this, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me, he was tapping into something that was just a part of the Hebrew culture. We just did this with the Boyds a couple nights ago. We, we did it late, we did it on the wrong end of Shabbat, but we, so we could be together. We celebrated the Sabbath meal together at the Boyds house, and what a precious time it was sitting around. But every meal in the Hebrew culture begins with the breaking of bread, not just the Passover all the meals. And it's a, a way that daily, and especially on Shabbat, to say, Lord, you are the center. We give you thanks because you're the source of life. You're the source of everything that we have. And we're not going to ever take you for granted, even if it becomes something we have to do. Every time we're going to remember who it is that gave us the bread from the earth. We're gonna remember that you're the center of this gathering. You're the reason why we have a family. You're the reason why we have every good things and we're fixing good things and we're fixing our gaze upon you right now. We welcome you who are already here into this gathering. And so when Paul broke that bread on that boat, he broke open Jesus for that entire crew and those that were absolutely full of fear and anxiety, maybe some of them believed Paul. Most of them, I think, at this point still thought he was some nut job. But when they all survived and made it to the shore, I'm going to tell you, there was the church of the shipwreck on that island at the end of the day. Because not a one of them died. And that was miraculous. He broke bread. And the presence of God in the middle of a storm put everybody's heart at peace. And instead of giving up and drowning in the sea, they swam to shore. And I'm going to tell you that what we have the ability to break open Jesus Christ because we have communion with him is exactly what every anxious heart needs right now. It's exactly what an angry world needs right now. It's exactly what a divided world needs right now is to be united in Christ. And so here's what Jesus said, and I'm gonna just kind of walk through. There's so much to be said about the Lord's table 
and about communion in him, but let's, uh, let's take a look at John 5. Um, John's gospel is based around seven miracles that John kind of glues together for the purpose of sharing the gospel. The gospel according to John is an evangelistic gospel. The entire purpose when you read through the gospel of John is this is John's gospel message. So imagine John preaching. I mean, it's a long message, (laughs) 21 chapters. It's a long word that John had for everybody. But John, um, he glues things together in a way to communicate a message. There are more words in red than the go- in the Gospel of John than all the other Gospels combined. Because he said, well, Jesus said it better than I ever could, so I'm going to just quote him a whole lot. And in John 5, uh, we have Jesus in Jerusalem. He's just healed the man at the uh, pool of Bethesda. And um, he, he now is going to share some things with the Pharisees and the people questioning him. And I'm going to just kind of jump in the middle because... I would just read the whole Gospel of John, but it would, it would take too long, and I want to get to the Lord's table with you. So verse 24, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. This is a precious phrase. Jesus used it twice. At least how John recorded it, he said it twice. And this is Jesus saying he's inaugurating a new day. This is a new time. We're not, this isn't something for the distant future. I am announcing that right now something is happening because of my word, because of what I'm doing right now. And he said an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I'm speaking to dead people, meaning all of y'all. Not, not all of y'all, this is Jesus saying to the crowd, the, the Pharisees and the Jews that he was speaking to, all of you, the Son of Man will come, an hour is coming now as the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. How many of you know you can hear something and really not hear it? That's why, right, the preachers, uh, the preachers always say, can you hear me? Well, yeah, you got really loud. I can, my ears are ringing right now with your voice, but can you hear? He who has ears to hear what the Spirit, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, right? So it's, it's hearing, but it's absorbing what's being heard. It's not just hearing like you listen to elevator music. There's something going in. That's what this hearing is about. Those who hear will live. Why? For just as the Father has life in himself, has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. This right here is a key to understanding Jesus. So God cannot die, right? The eternal one, God alone has immortality, First Timothy says. He's the only one who in and of himself cannot die. You can't kill God. It's impossible. He's the source of life, which means he has to have life in and of himself. Nobody gave God life. He's the self-existent one. It's what his name means. I am Yahweh. I am the self-existing one. He's the source of everything because he cannot die because there's no such thing as death around him. He's the source of life. So he's saying that Jesus said also, he has given me to have life in myself. That's why Jesus could say to those who wanted to kill him, nobody can take my life from me. I'm going to have to lay down my life of my own accord. Do you know that Jesus was not killed on a cross? Nobody could kill the Son of Man. Why? He said it right here. He gave to the Son to have life in himself. Somebody put it really well and said, you know, the wages of sin is 
death. Well, Jesus never worked for sin. So he wasn't due a paycheck of death at the end of his life. He had to lay his life down. It wasn't nails on the cross. It wasn't his blood being spilled out that ended his life. He laid it down of his own free will. Not by just giving himself over to the crucifiers, but until he said the words, into your hands I commend my spirit, life was never gonna leave his body. He was not subject to death. So that's Christ. The only one who's ever lived since the, since the curse of sin came into the garden, right? And dying you will die. That's literally how the Hebrews rendered about eating from the other tree in that garden. You're gonna die, but in dying you'll die, meaning you have eternal death in store for you. Being dead means that's your new permanent condition. So we were all born. Born of the flesh, that's how we all are, because only the Son of God, Jesus, has life in himself. So then he goes on, he says, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Notice he doesn't say, and now is. There's an hour coming, somewhere down the road. It's not for today. Right now, all of those who are dead inside, dead in spirit are gonna hear his voice, and those who hear will live. But there's another hour coming at the last day in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice will come forth. Those who did good to the resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. So God's the only one in all creation who cannot perish. You know that John 3.16, right? Everybody's first memory verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Not that should not die, but should not perish. There's a difference. Dying is what everything that's alive will do one day. Save, unless the Lord returns first, all of us will go to a grave. We will die. That's, that's an expected end of our lives, at least in this land. Um, we whistle past the graveyard, some of us. Sometimes we just kind of go through life as if eternity doesn't exist. That's a big mistake for us, even in the body of Christ, to make. To have the, you know, we got our ticket to eternal life. We got Jesus. I've, yes, I've believed and, you know, I've come to repentance and salvation. And so now all I'm, I'm still now going to live for this life. How many of you know that when we come alive to Christ, there is an expectation of life on the other side of a grave? And that compels us. There are days, I don't know about you, there are days that that's the only hope I've got left. You know, when those Jonah, uh, jo Jonah days, well not Jonah, Job days come, when all the bad things happen at once, and it doesn't seem like you can find any hope in anything, there's always one, an anchor, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, which has entered beyond the veil. It's that we have eternal life and that can never be taken from us. Sometimes that's all we have left, but right now, we have life. So he who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, a life that goes beyond the grave. Everything that's in the created order is dependent on God to have life. Just as we need oxygen to have life, we need to consume food to have life. Our bodies need certain things. Our soul needs certain things. There's a phrase, a, a phrase that we're using a lot these days. Soul care, our heart needs to be cared for. Our mind needs to be cared for. Our, our, our soul, our heart, everything about us needs to be cared for. But so does our spirit. Our spirit needs to be cared for. And, and what we many times take for granted is that now that I'm in Christ and I have eternal life, well, now I could just go on with my life and not feed my spirit. There are certain things our spirit needs. We call it soul food, right? We have soul food. 
That Brazilian barbecue was soul food for me. I mean, until I got meat sweats, it was so good. Oh my goodness, it was. It just made me made me feel like I got saved again in my soul. I mean, you know, <laughs> at least in my soul, my body was rejoicing with every bite. It was the best meat I've ever had. I'm, I'm salivating right now just thinking about it. I can't wait to go back to this place. Um, where was I? But our spirit needs our spirit needs food too. Our spirit has got to be sustained. Our spirit came to life when we got saved. But our spirit needs to be fed or it'll die. You know, if you don't eat, you'll die. You can fast, but only a certain length of time. If we don't drink, we will die. You can go a certain length of time, but eventually your body will give out. And similarly, if you eat nothing but sugar all the day long, you're going to get diabetes, you're going to die. If you eat nothing but junk food, you're going to get fat, and, and then you're going to die. We've got to feed our body. We need to feed our soul, but we also need to feed our spirit. And there's certain things that our spirit can consume that brings life to it. And then there's other things our spirit can consume that kills it. That, that's like drinking and eating poison to our spirit. Today, we want to talk about that which brings life, and that's Jesus Christ. So let's, let's go on. For us to have eternal life, we have this resurrection of spirit, and then we've got to feed. So let's go to John chapter six, and we'll learn what Jesus taught about how to feed our spirit. So between John chapter five, that was in Jerusalem, Jesus comes back up around the Sea of Galilee, he feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, gets back in the disciples' boat. The crowd that was there for the feeding of the 5,000, which I, I think is gonna be um, happening soon in The Chosen. Or did it happen already? I don't remember. It's been so long. Um, they all came, and the, and the people all raced around to meet Jesus, and like, how'd you get here so fast? He just said, I took a shortcut. I walked across, and, and then I got a ride in a boat. So let's go to verse, um, I'll start in verse 28. So this crowd is there, and Jesus said, look, you're following me because you had free food, and don't work for that, work for eternal life. And then he says, they said to him, so what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? What should we do? Isn't that always the question of dead religion? Tell me what I have to do to connect with God. I gotta have some part in this thing. I've gotta do something. There's gotta be some kind of hoop to jump through, lever to pull, button to push, uh, surely I've got to do something and then I can connect with God. And Jesus said, no, it didn't really work like that. This is the work of God. Believe in the one who he sent. Let's just start with that. You'll do good works as a result of what happens inside of you after you believe, but no, no more hoops, no more sacrifices, no more religious dead works. That day is over. Now it's just belief. Uh, but not a belief like I acknowledge God in my mind. How many of you know the demons all believe in Jesus too? You know that, right? In fact, they were the first ones to recognize him. When he walked through his own people, so they were confused. Even his disciples were like, oh, this is a guy, the wind and waves of bam. We don't know anything about The demons all knew who Jesus was. They believed that Jesus was the son of God. So belief alone is not that. It's a belief that translates into a change of life. That's what we're talking about. Believe in him who is sent. So they said to him, well, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? I got, we gotta see something. We can't just take your word for it. Show us something. Show us the goods. What, what work do you perform? <laughs> Jesus, I would Jesus be like, dude, I just fed 5,000 people with a happy meal. 
And that's why you came around to meet me over here. And now you want to see another miracle before you'll believe? Oy vey. That's about all I'd have to say. Oy vey. I don't even know what that actually means, or is that just a, uh? It's just a noise. Yeah, that's what the Jews of Brooklyn invented that word, I think, right? That's, that's Yiddish. Anyway, oy vey. What else do I got to do to prove myself to you? They said, look, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, you know, 40 years. Every morning we had food on the ground. I mean, we complained about it a lot, but anyway, God did that. We couldn't deny that miracle. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you that bread. My father gives you the true bread out of heaven. And guess what? That's me. The bread which God, uh, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So you had a miracle of manna and they all died in the wilderness. I've come to give you something much better. I've come to give you something that will last this life and all the way on through eternity and it's not just for us Israelites, it's for the whole world. It goes first to the Hebrew and then to the rest of the world, gives life to the world. So they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. And then he's going to knock their socks off. Well, guess what? He said to them, I am the bread of life. You've got to understand something about that expression. I am, of course, is the name of God, Yahweh. I am. The Hebrews, the Jews, especially near Jerusalem and near the synagogue, were very cautious about using the phrase I am because it's the name of God. You may know Orthodox Jews today will not even write the word God. It's G-D. There's, the name is so sacred that it won't even be written out. They take the name of God seriously. Oh, that we would too. I mean, not to the point of like J-E blank U-S. I mean, not, not like that. But they would honor that name and revere that name and understand it really is the name above every other name. And we wouldn't take it for granted and use it like it's any other common name. But they would be really careful about their use of that word. So when Jesus said, I am... He was on purpose declaring himself to be God. And as the names in Hebrew are, and we've studied that together, I think we did a series on all the names, the old covenant names of God, you know, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Nisi, and so on, all the different names of God. He said, I am, and then introduced an attribute of himself that was for his covenant people, some way that he would bless them, some way he'd cover and provide for them. And Jesus introduced seven new covenant names. In the, for the new covenant. This is the Jesus I am names. And one of them is right here. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. I am the bread of life. So the incarnation of the only one who has life in and of himself is speaking to you right now. I have life in myself and I'm gonna feed you on that life as it was in the Garden of Eden. You know, God wasn't holding out on them about eating from the other tree, right? That was the lie, the original lie before the original sin was that God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat from this tree because you'll be wise and you'll be just like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And the big lie of all was that, well, the tree of life was the tree. The tree of life is how you have eternal life. You know, Adam and Eve didn't have life in themselves. They had to eat from the tree of life to live forever. Remember in the, when, when they were put out of the garden, it, the saying was, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. Live forever in that condition? Live, you look how quickly they messed up the world. I mean, they had the first murder in the next generation. Look how fast we mess things up without God involved. 
I mean, it doesn't take long. A couple of generations, people are murdering, people are doing all the same stuff that we live with today. And that was, that was why. It wasn't like the curse of sin, like a punishment. Go to your room. It was, I love you too much to let you destroy yourselves in this world. And so the tree of life, living forever in this condition, not good. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day where you're going to eat from the tree of life and he's going to have a name and that name is Jesus. And if you eat from that tree, you eat from that life, now something comes alive on the inside that survives the grave. So the evidence of our faith, just so you know, it's not found in anything to do with reason and logic. I know that all of us have tried, many of us love friends and love those that we minister to enough to try to explain things to them, to explain the cross, explain why it is that we need salvation, what, you know, what's wrong, why isn't it just you know, my good works outweigh my bad works. And we, it's good to learn and it's good to have a ready answer to explain the hope that lies within us, but you understand that the most important thing of all is to have a testimony of life to have a testimony that when, when I came to God, when I gave my life to Jesus, something happened on the inside of me that's undeniable. There's life on the inside of me right now. Things have begun to change. I've become more forgiving. I've become more peaceful. I've become more uh, fill in the blank on whatever that is. I just remembered a testimony a friend of mine, Don Swigert, one of the most powerful prophets I've ever met, uh, just an amazing, powerful redhead woman, fills the room, scares the bejeebies out of the devil, I know that. And anyway, she was sharing her salvation story, and she's got this brilliant mind, and she had a friend that she worked with who wasn't as quick as her, not as smart as her, so she used to argue him down about her atheism, paganism, whatever other things she was into in that day, and would always out-argue him. And then one day he looked at her, and he said, Don. I got peace, what have you got? And that was the moment of her heart turning and she got saved. That's all he said, I got peace, what have you got? Girl, you are anxious all the time, you are angry, you are anxious, you're obnoxious, you're just a jerk. He didn't say all that, that's what I would have added. So it was good that he was the one that God sent. I got peace, what have you got? So I'm going to invite you, we're going to um, gather in groups now, and we'll, we'll, I'll exhort just a little bit more, but I'd like you to get the uh, juice from the front or the back, and I'm going to pray and break the bread up front. I made this. I hope it tastes good. I didn't try it yet. It smells good. I hope it came out right. If it didn't, just take a little piece. And I want to do this because it is significant. I know we've been using those pre-made cups for a while, and, and we're, we're over that. We're not going to do that anymore. Because um, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. There's something powerful about the revelation of what this bread means. That the only one who has life in himself allowed his perfect body to be broken. He was the only perfect man who ever existed since Adam before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He, he was, that's why Jesus called the last Adam, the only one who had perfection and therefore life, not subject to death kind of life on the inside of him. When we break this bread and we partake of it, we take a part of it, we become partakers of the divine nature when we feed by faith. So what I'm gonna ask you to do 
is to grant you everybody grab your own juice and send one representative from your group of anywhere from three to five. The tables, please use the tables. That's the best way to gather. There aren't enough for everybody. So find a way you can separate the chairs and make a circle out of them if you want. But I'd like you to come and take, send one rep from the table to grab a piece of bread to share around the table and um, gather up. And when you gather up, um, consider this question and just share with one another. Just one thing, don't tell a long story I know some, some of us like to tell long stories. Tell a short story, just answer the question. How have you seen God's life at work on the inside of you? What's happened in you? The more recent, the better, but however far back you need to go, you can go. How have you seen the evidence? Like there is no way, it's undeniable. This is what Jesus has done on the inside of me. The boards are gonna just minister a song over us while we do that, feel free to join in as you gather your elements. But Father, we thank you for giving us the bread of life. And as the Jews said when you first revealed yourself as the bread of life, always give us this bread. This bread which gives our spirit the capacity to live beyond the grave. Holy Spirit, come now and embody Jesus in this meal which we partake of. Make it far more than a token of remembrance, but bring life to us as we feed by faith. Amen. Amen. So please uh, go ahead and grab your elements. If anybody, if you have a hard time moving around, just stay put. Saints in here are paying attention enough and love enough that they'll come meet you where you're at. And uh, remember to send one representative to come and get some bread from the front. Try to do it as quickly as you can and stay in an atmosphere of worship, please, as you do. So this invitation to the Lord's table is an invitation to life that survives even the grave. We have to eat natural food to survive and to sustain our mortal bodies. We have to partake of this spiritual food also to keep our spirit alive. That's the purpose of this. So Jesus went on and he said, he who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. Abide means not just a visit every once in a while. I have four people that abide in my house. Right now we have eight in my house because the Lawsons are staying with us and visiting. But the Lawsons will go back to their home in North Carolina soon and it'll be back to the ones who abide in the house, who live there, who gather around a table and share meals together, who do life together, who sleep in the same, under the same roof together, who go places together, who do things together. That's what abiding is all about. Not just an occasional morning devotion with Jesus, not just an occasional visitation with him and the saints on Sunday morning. But I'm talking about how a, a branch abides in the vine, always connected, always in a life flow, back and forth with one another. That's what it means to abide. And so, as a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will also live because of me. And this is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. Salvation is not just found 
and praying a sinner's prayer one time, getting a ticket to paradise, and then going about life. Salvation is found in doing good deeds and hoping that those outweigh the bad deeds. That's dead religion. It never worked for anybody. It certainly isn't going to work in Christ who said it is finished. It's never going to be that way. Salvation's not even found just in believing in God. As I shared earlier, even the demons do that. Salvation is found in partaking of a living Jesus day by day. Living in such a way that we're so dependent on Him that as our body would die without food, we recognize our spirit would die without a connection, an ongoing living connection with the God of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is all about. Salvation from the great is found in abiding in Christ. And because we're abiding in Christ, He can't die. That means we can't die. There's so many that are that, that have asked over the years, asked some of you, asked me, how do I know I'm saved? How, how do I, you know, I really messed up again. I had a season where I was like a prodigal and I walked away from the Lord. How do I know I'm saved? And it's like this desperate heart cry and this desperation of, man, did I lose it? Did I do something that this time, that's it, I'm cast out, I've lost everything that God gave me? And the answer, of course, we know is absolutely not. There is no way to lose this salvation because salvation is not dependent on it. How do I know that if I die tonight, I'm going to see Jesus face to face, going to be the next thing I see? Because I was just talking with him. I was just talking with him a few minutes ago. I'm talking with him right now. I'm in communion with him right now. You know, we already have paradise on the inside. All that happens after we die and are raised from the dead is we get to see paradise on the outside perfection of everything that's on the inside even when we look at ourselves we're going to see ourselves in this new glorified body we're hardly going to recognize ourselves as his own friends could hardly recognize Jesus there's something on the inside that when it's revealed when Christ is revealed who's on the inside on the outside it's going to be something great and glorious and absolutely nothing can take it away from us because this covenant cup that we're going to partake of here was not a covenant that Jesus made with us. As if, you know, in a marriage covenant, it's dependent on both husband and wife. The husband makes a promise, the wife makes a promise, and how many of you married people will testify that everyone, every husband and every wife has fallen short on that covenant? Violated the covenant in some way. I don't mean like all the way down the road to full-on adultery or something like that, or a walking away, but I mean, I promise to love you with my whole heart, but I didn't do that all the time. I promise to, you know, whatever things you promised on that day, all of us have fallen short. That's the kind of covenant that can fail. And if the covenant was dependent on that, then all of us have failed in the covenant. Now this covenant was a covenant cut between the Father and the Son. When the Son offered himself to the Father and said, None of them's going to be able to make it through this covenant we got right now where they have to pay a price of, you know, some sacrifice for their sin. Nobody's ever being made righteous on the inside, worthy of eternal life through that. So how about if we make a covenant through my blood? What if I lay down my life and I give myself in their place? Will that suffice so that they could come and enjoy paradise with us once again? And the Father said yes and received Jesus' sacrifice, cutting a covenant that had nothing to do with us. The only part we play in this covenant is to say, yes, I'm in. And I'm in Christ. And He is in me. And that's the only part we play. So whatever failure you've come here with today, 
whatever disappointment, whatever thing you feel, whatever thing at home you're feeling right now that makes you feel a little bit distant or separated from God, I want to tell you right now, it did not separate us from God. It cannot separate you. It cannot break the covenant because the covenant was never dependent on us in the first place. We entered the covenant by confessing, I've got nothing to offer. I've got no good thing to offer paradise. I don't come bringing a contribution that will make an improvement on heaven. All of us came saying, I am broken, I am destitute, and I've got no good thing in me, and I'll need this life that you have to offer me right now. And nothing will ever change that. So as we partake of this cup, I want to read a scripture over you. You can partake of the cup whenever you feel. This is the cup of our covenant. And as covenants in ancient times, a marriage covenant was sealed this way. Covenants between nations were sealed this way. They would drink from the same cup. We Westerners have lost that habit because we're germaphobes. But they would share a common cup indicating this represents, whatever is in this cup represents something that we all are taking in. And we're all a part of the same thing. This, the blood of Jesus, means we've all partaken of that blood. Now that blood flows in our veins. That's what makes us one. We're one in this covenant together. So take this whenever the Spirit of God really moves on you to take it. But take it by faith and believe that you are sealed in a covenant that nothing could ever take away. So here's the, uh, I want to read for you Romans 8. But from the Passion Translation. does all this mean? If God has determined to stand with us, then tell me, who could ever stand against us? God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his son. And since God freely offered him up as the sacrifice for us all, he certainly won't withhold from us anything else that he has to give. So who then would dare to accuse those whom God's chosen and loved to be his? God himself is the judge who's issued his final verdict over them. Not guilty. Who then's left to condemn us? Certainly not Jesus, the anointed one. He gave his life for us, and more than that, he has conquered death and is now risen, exalted, and enthroned by God at his right hand. So how could he possibly condemn us since he's continually praying for our triumph? Who could ever separate us from the endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one. Nothing in the universe has the power to diminish his love toward us. Troubles, pressures, problems, they're unable to come between us and heaven's love. What about persecution, deprivations, dangers, even death threats? Nope, they're all impotent to hinder omnipotent love. Even though it's written, all day long we face death threats for your sake, God. We're considered to be nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. Yet even in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them all. For God has made us to be more than conquerors and has demonstrated love in our glorious victory over absolutely everything. But now I live with the confidence that there is nothing in the universe with the power to separate us from God's love. 
I'm convinced that his love will triumph over death, over life's troubles, over fallen angels, dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or future circumstance that can weaken his love. There's no power above, there's no power beneath, no power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The word of the Lord be so firm in our hearts that we will believe every word just spoken, every word that's heaven declared that nothing can break this covenant of love you've made with us. So we today renew our covenant with you to just abide in you, just live our life in you and through you so that your life may be lived and breathed through us. We take of this cup your blood with gratitude and with faith as we go forth from this place. Amen.